0: Welcome to episode 198 of the Deeper Christian Podcast. This is the podcast to help you study God's Word, know Jesus intimately, and discover how you can build your life around Jesus Christ. I'm Nathan Johnson, and in today's special Holy Week episode, I want to talk about the life and death of Jesus Christ. Let's dive in. Well, this is Holy Week. What a great time to set our minds fresh upon Jesus Christ and delight in all that he has done upon the cross. There's something amazing about this week that as you walk through this week from Palm Sunday, Sunday all the way through Resurrection Sunday, there is this, this anticipation of what is happening all throughout this week. It's interesting that in the Gospels, the majority of the writing in each of the four Gospels is centered on this particular week. In fact, the entirety of Scripture all points to this reality. I've said this so many times, but in the Old Testament, everything is focused upon Jesus Christ, and it's pointing or culminating to the reality of the cross of Jesus Christ. And, of course, the New Testament flows out. From that incredible reality. Well, a few years ago I had preached a message and I was looking at several of the foreshadows throughout the Old Testament in light of this grand reality of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I just thought it'd be fun since we are pondering all things Jesus this week, which technically should be our pondering of every day, of every single week. But since this day we typically intentionally focus on the death of Jesus Christ and the reality of his resurrection, I decided it'd be fun to go back into that archive and listen to this section of a sermon where I'm walking through some of these great, what I would probably call Christophanies or pictures in the Old Testament that declare the reality of Jesus Christ and the cross. So Without further ado, let's jump into this message that I preached years ago, talking about this wonderful, incredible Savior of ours, Jesus Christ. I want to talk about one other concept with you, and it's just the death of Christ. I don't don't know if you ever walked through the death of Christ in terms of just the Christophany that God has built in His Word in terms of the death of Christ, but it is, I literally ponder it often, and I am just constantly I, I stand amazed all the time of who Jesus is. And again, it was so neat being in Israel because you know we got to see the sights that this happened. And on our final day, we got to go to the garden tomb. And we, we took communion and we worshiped at the very location that, that Christ was crucified, I mean, and then he was buried, and then he rose again. And there's something about being right smack dab in the middle of that, and you begin to see all the Christophanies through the word begin to, there it is, there it is, there it is. And it's like God, through all of Scripture, was Pointing one direction, and it's like, "Do you see it? Do you see it? Do you see it? Do you see it? Do you see it?" Do you see it? So, <clears throat> do you see it? I just want to walk you through this. This is so amazing. Ah, the week before the crucifixion, you realize that Jesus came in on what we would call the triumphal entry, and he started on the top of Mount of Olives, which is right across from Jerusalem. So you have the the, the city over here, and then you have this brook Kidron, and then here's the Mount of Olives. And he started on the Mount of Olives, and he, he got on a donkey, and he, he wound his way down, went across Brick Kidron, and went into the temple. Listen to this. Uh, Matthew 21. Now when they drew near Jerusalem and came to the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied in a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone, says to you, uh, if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has needed them, and immediately he will send, send them. <clears throat> and this was done, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. So this is Zechariah 9.9. Tell the daughter of Zion. By the way, Zion is one of the hills in Jerusalem. So you have Mount, Mount Zion, which is the city of David. And then about 20 paces later, poof, Mount of Jerusalem. It's the same mountain, but they, they split it. Mount Zion, Jerusalem. But tell the daughter of Zion. So literally declare from Jerusalem... Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the fowl of a donkey. And of course you ask, why a donkey? And you realize that in that culture, if you entered into a city on a stallion, as a commander, it meant you're bringing war. You're bringing division. But in that culture, as an army military person, if you were to enter into a city riding a donkey, it was a sign that you were offering peace. And do you know how our Savior came? Offering peace. He came lowly, riding upon a donkey. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them, and they brought the donkey and the colt and laid their clothes on them, and he sat upon them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road, and others cut down palm branches of the trees and spread them on the road. Then the multitudes who went before those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna. Hosanna. As Jesus was winding down this very steep passage down the Mount of Olives. It's interesting, he gets to the bottom of the Mount of Olives and he turns his head and he looks at Jerusalem and he begins to weep and he begins to mourn. And he says, <clears throat> when he saw the city, he wept over it saying, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that made for your peace, because you did not know the time of your visitation. Do you know what Jesus is actually weeping over the fact? They weren't ready for his coming. He says, you should have been ready. I mean, yeah, you just did the whole Hosanna thing, but, but you're not prepared. The whole city is sleeping. I mean, why, why aren't you ready? And, and do you know what he's poking at? And you can study this out if you want. But if you did a study of Daniel chapter 9, Daniel 9 is talking about the coming of the Messiah. And what is so phenomenal is when you actually start putting all the pieces together with the Jewish calendar, what you'll find is that the day that Jesus went on a donkey into Jerusalem, did you realize it was prophesied by Daniel to the very day. I mean, when you actually count out the days and stuff, based on a Jewish calendar, when it was prophesied and you count out the week stuff, and you actually look at the day that Jesus would have entered into Jerusalem, it was prophesied to the very day. And Jesus says, you could have known. Hey, you could have been ready. There's this thing in the Roman world called the Roman triumph. Just, I, I got back from Israel, and I came across this new book that just came out. And uh, I was really excited about reading it, because basically it's someone's story about her experience in Israel. And I was like, oh, that'd be fun. So I got the audio book, and I was listening to it. And I was like, whoa. And it's a lot of stuff that we talked about when we were in Israel. But there was this piece in it that I had never seen before. So I figured I might as well bring you in on it, if that's okay. I just want to read you a little piece of this book, because it was just like, that is amazing. I've never seen it before. And it's called The Roman Triumph. So this is what was written. Just, just ponder this in light of Jesus, all right? <clears throat> so the Bible tells us that Jesus was born during the reign of the Roman emperor Caesar, Caesar Augustus, who was the son of the assassinated Julius Caesar. Now Caesar Augustus vowed to build a temple to honor his murdered father and to hold a dedication ceremony to proclaim his father as divine or as a god. During that ceremony, a comet streaked through the sky, a sign that Caesar Augustus declared as confirmation that he himself must be the Son of God if his father, Julius Caesar, was God. Now, you've got to think this through in terms of a Roman intellect. So this is, this is a Roman mindset. From that period on, the Roman people believed that Caesar Augustus to be divine, to be the divine Son of God. What began as a way to honor conquering generals soon became limited to the emperors, proclaiming their sovereignty and their divinity. Now listen what the, what they would do. So, speaking of the Roman triumph, the ceremony began with the Roman soldiers who assembled at the praetorium. Does that word sound familiar to you? If it doesn't, do note that Jesus was taken to the praetorium. That's where, they were, that's where he was flogged. So they would start at the praetorium where the guards were stationed. Then a purple robe, the color of royalty, will be placed on the emperor, and a wreath will be placed upon his head. "Hail, Caesar! they would shout, and the people would chant, Triumph! As the emperor and the guards wound their way down the Via Sacra in Rome to arrive at their capitoline or their head hill. Isn't this weird? There, a bull would be sacrificed by someone who had been carrying an instrument of death. And the emperor would then be offered a bowl of wine, which he would refuse or sometimes pour out upon the head of the sacrificed bull. Finally, the emperor would ascend the steps of the capitoline or the head hill, accompanied by someone on his left and someone on his right and the entire population would declare him as their savior, their divine Caesar, proclaiming, Hell, Caesar, Lord, and God. Then they would all look for signs in the heavens to confirm their leader's coronation. Ray, the tour guide, brilliantly described how the destruction, description of Jesus' last days in Mark's gospel, including Jesus' suffering, perfectly paralleled the Roman procession known as a triumph. After Jesus had been sentenced to death by Pontius Pilate, he was taken to the Praetorium in Jerusalem by the Roman guards. There they stripped him, threw a purple robe over him and placed a crown of thorns upon his head. Then they mockingly worshipped, saying, Hell, the king of the Jews, and bowed down to him, striking him and spitting on him. And they had t- when they had tired of the sport, they led him along the Via Dolorosa to be crucified, Jesus carrying his own cross, his instrument of death, until he collapsed beneath it. A passerby, Simon of Cyrene, was forced to carry Jesus' cross for him to Golgotha, the place of the skull or Head Hill. There, the soldiers laid Jesus on the cross and crucified him along with two revolutionaries, one on his left and one on his right. They offered him sour wine, which he refused. Pontius Pilate had insisted that a sign, a a titillus, a placard that identified his so called crime, reading, The King of Jews be nailed to the cross of Christ. And he suffered, as he suffered, the crowd around him taunted him, Hail, the King of the Jews! They hurled blasphemies and insults on him. And once Jesus gave up his spirit, there was an earthquake and the curtain at the entrance of the Holy of Holies in the temple was split in two from top to bottom. Signs indeed. But perhaps the greatest irony was what was said by the Roman centurion who had watched the entire event. Surely this man was the Son of God. Isn't that amazing how God took a pagan cultural ceremony and used the enemies of God to say he's the king. He's the emperor. He's He's divine. Interesting, crucifixion happened on Passover, the Feast of Passover. And if you want to study that out, you can look at Exodus chapter 12. Interesting, if you go back to the original uh, Passover, you remember here, here they are, they're they're slaves in Egypt, and after nine of the plagues that Moses did, he says, "Hey, I'm going to kill the firstborn." So what you need to do as a good Israelite or a good Jew, you need to take this little lamb. And you need to bring the lamb into your house for four days, one day for each of the hundred years that you were a slave. Which probably meant by the end of those four days, I mean, you know what happens if you bring an animal home for your kids, right? You know, you, you, probably, you probably give it a name like Chops, right? And uh, so here's our lamb named Chops, and it becomes like a family pet, and you start to love on it, and, you, and you're sleeping with it. And it becomes, which meant when you had to sacrifice it, there was a greater pain. And at the end of those four days, you would take the lamb and you would kill the lamb. And what they would do is they had to roast the entire lamb to have the Passover celebration. So what they would do is, uh, it's, a lot of scholars presume they probably used a pomegranate a pole, a piece of wood, because of the fact that in a, in a lot of heat, pomegranate wouldn't boil, and you couldn't boil, boil the animal. So what they would do is they would take the lamb and they would put a, a piece of wood, a pomegranate pole, up through the lamb to hold the lamb. And in order to actually cook it properly, they would have to open up the, the chest cavity or the shoulders, so they would put a little crossbar of wood in the lamb to hold, open the, to hold open the lamb. So think about this. Original Passover, you have this lamb literally skewered on a cross. And in order to cook the entire thing, they would gut the lamb, sorry about the grossness, but they would gut the lamb and you had to cook the entrails, but you, wanted, you didn't want them inside, so they would wrap the entrails around the head of the lamb literally symbolizing a crown. And a Jew would say it's a crown of victory. Why? Because that's what allowed them to escape. And you would take some of the blood and you would put it upon the doorpost of your house. And some scholars have suggested that, that when, you, when you put it on this side and you put it on this side and you put the blood on the top, this blood would drip down and you, you, there, even there you would have a sign of a cross. And then they would, they would take the roasted lamb and they would eat the lamb and it was by the blood of the lamb that they received their freedom from Egypt. And then every year they were to go back and they were to reenact this thing. So during the time of Jesus, you were to take your little lamb and you were to take it down to the temple because it was to be offered as a sacrifice down at the temple. So what they would do is they, they would take you down to the temple and they would put a little placard with your family's name on the little lamb. And that way you can give the lamb over to the high priest, and the high priest would go and they would do the sacrificial stuff, and they would come out the other side with your lamb that has your little family name placard on the on it. Isn't it fascinating? That here's Jesus, which the writer of Hebrews says that he is our Passover lamb. He's our perfect spotless lamb. In fact, 1 Peter 1.19 says that you are redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. And just think about this. Just as these little lambs had a family placard around their neck. Did you know that Jesus had a family placard above his head? It's hilarious to me, but it says that now Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross and the writing was Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Then many of the Jews read this title for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. And therefore, when the chief priest of the Jews, sorry, therefore, the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but he said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, what I have written, I've written. Isn't it interesting? Here is Pilate with no backbone. Here is Pilate who is being manipulated and schmoozed, and during this whole scene, and we understand that you know uh, Caesar gave Pilate basically one more chance. I'm going to send you to uh, to Palestine, and you're going to be over there in this land called Israel, and hey, you're gonna, you're going to be the head guy. However, there's all this insurrection stuff happening. If there's a problem, you're dead, and I'm going to replace you. This is this was this was Pilate's last opportunity, and isn't it interesting? The Jews obviously knew that because when you read the storyline. The Jews are manipulating Pilate. Pilate, hey, you call yourself a friend of Caesar, but if you don't kill this man, we're going to tell him that you let, uh, you let another king live. And Pilate was being manipulated by the Jews to bring about the death of Christ. Do you see that? And, that was, and, it's, and it's, it's documented in, uh, in, in uh, other manuscript stuff. I mean, he, he was a pushover. He was. This was his last chance. So Pilate does not have a backbone. Pilate will not stand up for anything. Pilate was... Was trying to get rid of what Jesus gave him to Herod, then who he brought him back and just said, Fine, I washed my hands, the whole thing, this is your deal. Isn't it interesting though? The one time that Pilate stands up, the one time he says, What I have written, I've written, was this. Isn't that mind boggling? He said, Push over the entire time. Why is he defending a stupid plaque? Of all the things, it's like, All right, I'll change that one. But he says, No, I refuse to change it. I'm a man. <laughs> do you know why the high priest, do you know why the Jews were so frustrated? Do you know why they wanted it changed? Because a good Jew thinks in acronyms. That you would see things and you would take the first letter of things. And, and that's, that's how they thought. That was, that was cultural today. And when they saw the placard, this is, this is the Hebrew line, when you took the first letter, do you know what it spells? Jesus' family name, the unspeakable name of God, Yahweh, Jehovah. Do you know what was placed above the head of Jesus? His name. By the way, if you did the Hebrew letter thing for this, do you know what it says? Hand behold, nail behold. That's what Yahweh stands for. It says at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani? that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we've said this so many times here. But he's not really saying, God, you've left me. Really what's happening is he's saying, folks, Psalm 22. And the Jews of that day, you would literally begin to quote a psalm. You would really designate a psalm by the first line of that phrase. So by the fact that Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's not saying, God, you've left me. He said, look, Psalm 22. Do you know what Psalm 22 is all about? The crucifixion. And you read that thing, and and as you walk through it, and I'll I'll let you do it on your own. As as you walk through it, it's it's literally describing the very events that they pierced my hands and my feet. Here they are, they're gambling for my clothing. Here they are, they're mocking me. Hey, there's prisoners on the side of me dying. I mean, literally, they would have looked and said, we're living in this. And 1,000 years before the crucifixion, Jesus is saying, do you not remember that psalm that's describing what you're seeing in this very moment? But why does it say the ninth hour? Why, Why is Scripture so specific on the time? Luke's account says, Now it was the sixth hour, and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. Then the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was torn in two and when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Why the ninth hour? Well, one, it was, the, it was an hour of prayer. But you got to remember, this was happening on the day of Passover, folks. Interesting. Right before this point, uh, what they would do, they had a, every family in Israel had a Passover lamb, and it was their family Passover lamb. But Israel had a Passover lamb for the year. Do you know what they would do? Just think about this. There was this town three to five miles away from Jerusalem called Bethlehem. And it was in this town that they would raise the sacrificial animals for the temple in Jerusalem. It's a great little town. A lot of history had happened there. But that's where they would raise the sheep. In fact... Almost every scholar would say that at the birth of Christ, the shepherds in the field were not just a normal shepherd. They were Levitical shepherds. They were caring for the sheep that would go to the temple. And what's interesting is once they would find a sheep, they would go and and the, the Levites would go and they would investigate the little sheep. They would look for the perfect little lamb for the sacrifice. They were scrutinizing, examining, testing the little lamb. Do you know when that took place? The same time that Jesus was being tested and examined as the perfect lamb in front of the high priest. In an illegal trial, and during an illegal trial that should not have happened, there's actually six of them. But during but during those trials, do you know what the high priest was doing? He was examining and testing and actually testing the perfect lamb of God. At the same time, one of his Levites was down in Bethlehem scrutinizing, testing, examining a little lamb. Do you know what they would do if they found the perfect little lamb? They would take the little lamb and they would put it in a manger, and they would take that little lamb and they would wrap it in swaddling clothes. Do you know why? It's because on the three to five mile journey from Bethlehem to Jerusalem, you didn't want that little lamb to scramble around and to freak out. Because if that little lamb scrambled around, he may break his leg and he would no longer be the perfect sacrifice. So they would take this little lamb and they would put it in a manger and wrap them with swaddling clothes. Which is why when the angels looked at these Levitical shepherds and said, the sign for you is going to be this babe in a manger wrapped in swaddling clothes, what they would have heard that as, that's a lamb, a perfect lamb, for a sacrifice done at the temple. And they came in and they knew it was the Christ. Why? Because here is the perfect little lamb in swaddled clothes lying in a manger. And they would take this little lamb and they would take it over to the temple. And at the proper hour, do you know what hour that they would sacrifice the Passover lamb for all of Israel? It was the ninth hour. It's three in the afternoon. Think about this. Here is Jesus, bloody, bruised, he's been scourged, he's been mocked, he can barely breathe. And you realize that crucifixion was one of the most brilliant forms of death. One, because it was so ridiculously painful. Most of the time you die of suffocation. Uh, You know, your your hand, by the way, this all was a hand, so whether it was here or whether here, doesn't really matter. I would probably argue here, because this would, your hand would rip out of the nail. But here you can put it between the two bones, and you'd be stuck. And they would nail your two feet. Uh, typically, you're right along the ground level. Uh, and they wanted you as close to the ground as possible as, as a sign of mocking. In other words, your, your feet may have only been a couple of inches off the ground. You're so close, but so far away. And then you'd be eye level with everyone who walked past you. And it's interesting that here's Jesus being nailed, and, and uh, he's, he's, he has to push himself up in order to get a breath. And it will be so painful that you collapse but then you have to breathe. So you have to push yourself up. And you do this for hours. And you realize that Jesus was hanging for hours and hours. And from the third, uh, from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, there was darkness. But at the ninth hour, at the exact same time that down at the temple, the high priest had taken the Passover lamb for the year. And as the high priest put put the knife to the Passover lamb's throat and slit the throat of the Passover lamb, do you know what was taking place? It says that Jesus gave up his spirit. And the Passover lamb died at the exact same time as the Passover lamb. I don't know, you, it's like... And it says that there were signs in the sky. An earthquake happened, sun was darkened, and down at the temple, the veil, which was not some little tiny piece of fabric, by the way, it was was the, the width of a man's hand. It was roughly four to six inches thick. And the reason is you didn't want that thing to move <laughs> because if there was a breeze, God might get out. So yeah, it's a thick curtain <laughs> so that, you know, we can keep him in. And he realized that it wasn't, and it was 30 feet tall, you recognize. So if someone's going to rip this thing, you, you would rip it from the bottom. You couldn't, but that's how, but it was ripped from the top to the bottom. Now we learn in the Old Testament that the color of that veil it was scarlet, blue, and purple, colors of royalty with this design of the cherubim and pomegranates in it. And it says, the writer of Hebrews says that the veil of the temple is the body of Christ. It was torn. And isn't it interesting if you were beaten and bruised and bloodied and hung on a cross that your body, the colors of your body would be blue and scarlet and purple just as the colors of the, of the veil Go back 4,000 years from now, but 2,000 years before Christ, God had chosen this man by the name of Abraham. He says, Abraham, I want you to go to this place that you know not of, and I want you to follow me. You're going to have to live in dependence because you have no idea where you're going. I want you to trust me. I want you to go. And he goes and settles in this land called Cana. Uh, He lived on this mountain called Hebron. In fact, that's why they became known as Hebrews, is because they came from Hebron. And one day... And you know this, you know, he tried in the flesh to produce the son and it was Ishmael and God says, I reject that because I will not accept anything of your flesh. But will you let me birth something? And so Isaac is born, truly a God-given miracle. And when this lad was roughly, you know, probably 12, 13, 14 years old, God looks at Abraham and says, I want you to take your son, I want you to go down the road, I want you to go to a place that I will show you, again, it's a place of dependency, you're going to have to trust me in this, and I want you to offer your son as a sacrifice. The writer of Hebrews says that by faith, Abraham left. And hey, they never seen anybody raised from the dead. So Abraham's assumption is, well, even if I kill him, God's going to have to raise him from the dead because this is the promise. He is the promise. He he is my beloved son, and he is the promise that God has given me, the covenant. And it says that Abraham took his son, and they went to this mountain, Mount Moriah. And it says that, uh, so God says, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, And offer him there as a burnt offering on the one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So he makes his way over. Get this. This is so mind-boggling to me. But it says, so Abraham took the wood. They got to the the edge of the mountain. He told his his servants, hey, stay here with the animal, with the donkey. We're going to come up. Me and my son are coming back. He had faith. It says that he took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac that Isaac was carrying his own wood for the sacrifice. Doesn't that sound familiar? And they make their way up the top of this hill. Do you know what hill that was? Mount Moriah is Jerusalem. Do you know where God led Abraham to sacrifice his only begotten son? At the same place where God, 2,000 years later, sacrificed his only begotten son. You know the story, Abraham takes, binds his son, puts him on the altar, gets ready to take the knife and bring it down upon Isaac. And it says that uh, God stopped him and God offered this ram. So Ab- Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering instead of his son. Get this. And Abraham called the name of the place, which is Jerusalem. The Lord will provide. Because he provided a ram. But it's also Christophonic that it's pointing to a greater reality. Because you know what the Lord's going to provide? A true sacrifice. In this spot. Now, if you talk to a good Jew today, this is my interpretation of, of Jerusalem. It's bad, I know. This is like one of Eric's illustrations. Uh, just just, just go with it. Uh, so this is the hill of Jerusalem. Okay, uh, there's a, It, it kind of has two sections. Now, it's interesting that uh, it says that the threshing floor that David bought... Right? You remember this story? Remember David bought the threshing floor to build the temple? The threshing floor would, would never have been at the very top of the hill. And the reason for that is that when you're threshing wheat, you thresh wheat here. And the reason is that the, the wind would come up over, the, up over the hill, and as you're throwing the chaff or throwing the grain up, the wind would pick the chaff and blow it off the mountain. But it's far easier to do that here on the little ridge than it is at the very top. So when David built the temple, he built it there. But you realize, and so if you talk to a good Jew, they would say that the Temple Mount is where Abraham sacrificed Isaac, but that makes no sense whatsoever because he was to go to the top of the mountain. And you realize the top of the mountain right up here, do you know what that's called? Well, we would call it Golgotha. And doesn't it just make sense? It just makes sense to me that if God was going to lead Abraham to sacrifice his son, at a particular mountain, in a particular place, it would be the exact same spot, don't you think, that he would offer his son? That's just how God works. Do you not see it? I don't know about you, I just go, whoa. One last thing about the crucifixion. I mean, there's, there's so many layers. I wish we had hours to just walk through this. There's just layer after layer after layer after layer. I mean, it's just so beautiful that God was scripting this whole thing from the very beginning, that he was declaring the the, the end from the beginning. Isn't it interesting that Jesus wore a crown of thorns? It says in Matthew 27 that the soldiers and the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe, a sign of royalty on him, and they twisted a crown of thorns and put him on his head. Thorns, by the way, in that, in that area, the, the, the tree they would have used, the thorns can grow anywhere from you know, an inch or so, but they can grow up to about four inches long. They would have taken it really carefully, put it into a crown, set it on his head, and likely beat it into his head so that the thorns would have gone into his skull. And you realize that as Jesus was on the cross, hanging on the cross, upon his head was a crown, a sign of royalty, but in this case of thorns. Why? Why? You realize that in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve sinned, one of the signs of the curse was that the land would bring forth thorns and thistles. Think about this. Here is Jesus dying for sin and on his head is the sign of the curse. And he was dying for the very thing that he was wearing. Isn't that beautiful? I think I've used that word about a dozen times, but I don't know any other words. It's just... Oh. Do you know how much he loved you? While you were yet a sinner, while you were shaking your fist in his face in rebellion, Christ died for you. He took your sign of the curse and was placed it upon his head. He went through the most excruciating death ever invented. And you realize it is the only form of death that I know of that you cannot do and commit suicide with. In other words, hey, you can can take a gun, you can can drown yourself, but you cannot crucify yourself. It demands somebody else. Because, hey, you can get this hand, you can get those two feet, but you have a doozy of a time getting that one. Someone has to crucify you. Which is why Paul says you must be crucified with Christ. And this is not something that you can whip up in your flesh. This is not something that you can produce. Why? Because you can't do this thing. It has to be done to you. His resurrection, if you follow this through, if you ever want to do a neat study, study the feasts and how Jesus fulfills the feasts. But on the day of first fruits, Jesus rose from the dead. And it was the Jewish holiday, the festival of first fruits. We don't have time to get into it, but let me just read you what Paul says about Christ. He says, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits. Speaking of the fact of his resurrection on the day of the feast of the first fruits. But not only that, but he was the first one in this new line. Right? You are children. You've been brought in, but he was the first. So he became become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all died, but even so in Christ all should be made alive, but each one in his own order. Christ the first, afterward those who, who are at Christ that is coming. That he was the prototype. That you were called to live as Christ lived. And it's like he was living the life that you were called to live. He was the prototype. He was the first one. Did it work? (laughs) Yes, it did. And you're now to be the second, the third, the fourth. There you are to follow in those footsteps. Colossians says that Jesus is the head of the body of the church who was the very beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have preeminence. Do you know what this whole thing is about? One person that he may have the preeminence. By the way, just as a fun side note, do you know what day the day that Noah's ark rested on the mountain? It happened to be the exact same day that Jesus rose from the dead. That the day of new beginnings for Noah in a new world was on the exact same calendar day as the resurrection one after another, after another. I and mean, there's so many layers of this. As if God's saying, do you not see it? It's all about my son. May I encourage you that as you continue throughout this week, don't let this week be the time of your life where you focus on the death and the life of Jesus Christ and then for the rest of the year, ignore him. Rather, this week, yes, perhaps should be more intentionally focused upon him, and yet, this week should cause and remind all of us that it is all about Jesus. As one of my favorite verses says, Romans eleven thirty six, For from him and through him and to him are all things for his praise and for his glory. Or as Paul says in Colossians 1, That in all things, he, Jesus, might have the preeminence, that he might have that first place. May that be true in our lives as we go throughout this year, as we celebrate Easter, Resurrection Sunday. Can I encourage all of us not just to add Jesus to our lives, but to allow him to be the very center and focus of our lives? Well, I just hope this message encouraged you and freshly reminded you that all of Scripture pertains and points to our great Savior, Jesus Christ. For show us of this episode, please visit deeperchristian.com forward slash 198 for episode 198. And until next time, know I am cheering you on as you build your life around Jesus Christ.